This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that uh, many of you do, you can turn there to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We uh, begin a series this morning I'll say more about um, in just a minute, but I want to um, speak to a couple of things so that uh, those of you who um, are especially attentive may notice, and I don't want you to be distracted. Um, This morning and throughout the remainder of the series in Luke, I will be preaching from a different translation than I normally do. Normally, I preach out of the NIV. Um, I'm going to be using the ESV uh, for Luke. Um, I know some of you have ESV, some of you have NIV, some of you have other um, translations, and I just wanted to uh, address that. Part of the beauty of the time in which we live um, is we have so many unique resources available to us to help us interact with God's Word on multiple levels and in multiple ways. And as we look forward um, to becoming a more Word-centered church and how we organize ourselves and and the encouragement and challenges that we give um, you as members, uh, we're looking at resources that are available. NIV is a a great translation. Uh, ESV is a a great translation. Uh, ESV has a lot of Uh, resources that Crossway is putting out. So I have to preach through something, even though I'm familiar with the translation. I've got to preach through it for a while um, before I see. And so we're kind of looking at things like that. But what I want to do just quickly, and then I'll move on from this, is dispel the idea that some of you may have um, about translations, right? And I know uh, Sharon warns me not to nerd out on this stuff, so I will not do that. But Generally, obviously, all translators and translation teams bring a certain philosophy to the way in which they translate from original languages. And uh, some of you may have heard, well, I don't like this translation. Uh, I like this one because it's, it's a, a word-for-word translation or literal translation. Uh, there is no such thing, just so you know. Any of you who are bilingual don't even have to be told that. There is uh, no way to translate one language to another word for word, literally. It doesn't work that way, Um, much less an ancient language like Hebrew, first century language like Koine Greek. Um, So maybe you prefer the NIV, or maybe you prefer what is now, NIV is by far still uh, the best-selling English translation uh, Bible in the world, most used. The the second best-selling now is actually the NLT, the New Living Translation. Third best-selling, rising up the ranks from 10 years ago, is the ESV, English Standard Version. But part of the reason that the NLT has grown so much is because we largely live in now a society that's very biblically illiterate. And we live in a society that is more and more uh, functionally illiterate. And what I mean by that is uh, most people in the United States are able to read but larger and larger portions are not reading anything longer than a text. Um, And so when you're getting into Scripture reading, it's 
more difficult. But just uh, maybe in case uh, you've tried to stick with the translation, that's hard for you because you believed it to be really word for word and you could trust it. Um, I want to help you relax, and maybe you've used a translation that somebody's told you, man, you, you need to get rid of that translation and use this one. This is more literal. I want to help you all out here um, by reading for you a very accurate translation of a familiar Bible verse, John 3, 16. We'll put it up on the screen so you can follow along with me here. In this way, for loved the God, the world, so that the Son, the only, he gave an order that each the believing into him not perish, but have life eternal. That's a word-for-word translation, as close as it can be done, of John 3.16. We don't have word-for-word translations. You with me? We couldn't read them. Different language. So all of that to say, and you may be sitting out here going, could not care less. I hope, unless you are a guest and extremely new to the faith, that's not so. I hope you're not so ignorant that you don't care at all about translations. Um, but I do hope you can relax a little bit and say maybe uh, with the great hope and trust that N.T. Wright has, even as one of the renowned uh, textual scholars in our world, that we trust that the Bible we have today in our hands is the Bible God intends us to have because we cannot have another. We cannot have another. So you'll notice that we'll be using, I'll be using the ESV, uh, get a bit more as we kind of look into it. Um, now, as we jump into Luke, we will be in Luke for a while. We'll break it up some. Uh, we'll be in it especially through three large blocks broken up by some smaller series. We can't preach through it like I would like to because uh, late into the week I broke it down looking at it as I would like to preach it as I feel like it uh, most lends itself naturally to the narrative blocks and it was 62 weeks. So we can't do 62 weeks because we're Americans. Um, but uh, we will do many weeks broken up into thirds. But I want to say to you something about my confidence in the way that we do series here and the way that we preach here. Because I do not apologize either for the length of some of the series we do or the way that we do them primarily, not always, but primarily through books, though we'll do topical series here and there as needed, nor the length of our preaching. I don't apologize for it. I believe in God's eternal, sovereign, unique use of his word to shape us, to feed us, to build his church, to lead men and women to true regeneration and faith in Jesus Christ, to heal wounds, to challenge us, to sanctify us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this some decades back, is it not clear as you take a bird's eye view of church history that the decadent periods and errors in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching had declined? What is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or a revival? It is renewed preaching. Not only a new interest in preaching, but a new kind of preaching. A revival of true preaching has always heralded these great moments in the history of the church. And of course, when the Reformation and the revival come, they have always led to great and notable periods of the greatest preaching that the church has ever known. As this was true in the beginning, as described in the book of Acts, so it was also after the Protestant Reformation. Luther, Calvin, Knox, Latimer, Ridley, all these men were great preachers. In the 17th century, you had exactly the same thing. 
the great Puritan preachers and others. And in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, the Wesleys, Rollins, and Harris were all great preachers. It was an era of great preaching. Whenever you get Reformation and revival, this is always and inevitably the result. Well, I'll leave to you and to history to judge whether we have great preaching here, but we will have biblically based and empowered preaching here. We will have gospel-centered preaching here, and we will trust God to do what He always does. Why? Because God's Word is central to the life of God's people individually and collectively. It is God's Word that forms God's people by God's Spirit into the image and character of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And what we want to do in the United States is church attendance and church membership and uh, pr professed um, faith and trust in and identity in Christianity continues to decline and decline and decline is say we stand on the historic biblical basics of our faith. And we trust God to do in our day what God has always done through them. Without need of our cleverness, without need of our creations, simply by the will and glory of his word. We want to avoid both dry orthodoxy. Let's just be honest. How many of us have experienced that? If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Maybe it's just me. I have experienced great deals of dry orthodoxy, meaning churches that believe the right things, but they were dry as a month-old McDonald's burger. Nobody wanted to be there. People sleeping all the time. Kids fighting with their parents. Husbands trying to find a race or the beach to go to. We want to avoid dry orthodoxy and shallow vibrancy. What I mean by shallow vibrancy is like someone who looks fantastic from the outside, but they're as unhealthy as they can be on the inside, right? What we long to see God do in us, our goal here is gospel-driven, vibrant orthodoxy. Faithfulness to Christ and his teachings, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Christians are always and have always been created by God's word. As surely as the world was called into being by the word of God, as surely as Abram was called to God by the word of his promise addressing him, so too we Christians are made Christians, followers of Jesus, by believing God in his word by trusting his promise, by having faith. And that faith, Paul says in Romans 10, comes by hearing the message of the gospel and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So I just want to say that as we jump into Luke, and maybe you'll wonder a year and a half from now why we're finishing it up. Um, it's because we trust in God's word. And in preaching through books, God's word addresses things in us that from a human standpoint, we, we wouldn't even have known we needed to address. Are you with me? But because God has ordained that portion of Scripture for that day, He speaks to us. Now, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to trust in the days and weeks to come, God to do what only God can do. Some of you will remember, uh, if you were old enough to watch TV and remember um, in the 80s, many of you were, some of you were not. There was a, a saying there and a, and a little jingle on a commercial that would go like this, inquiring minds want to know. Anybody remember that phrase? 
Yes, inquiring minds want to know. It was sort of the advertising catchphrase of a terrible tabloid newspaper called the National Enquirer, which is still around in some form or not. And they actually spelled inquiring with the E, and the inquiring minds want to know was a play on words that didn't actually make sense. But it worked audibly. Inquiring minds want to know, and they would say something like, you know, will Prince Harry and Meghan Markle still be able to be royal, inquiring minds want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Is Kanye, or Ye, as he thinks he's going to be known now, going to be able to sell his shirts out of construction trash bags at the Gap? Inquiring minds want to know. Well, I will tell you, people who are serious about faith, or questioning, or hurting and looking for Christ, are inquiring minds who want to know if what we believe is valid and true. And tell me if you follow Jesus long that you haven't been through a season where you wrestled a bit with that as well. Well, that's why Luke writes to us. The longest of all the Gospels. In fact, Luke wrote more of our New Testament than any other writer, the majority of any writer. And there's so much in here that's only from Luke. Luke seems to have taken the Gospel of Mark, which was written prior to the Gospel of Luke and parts of of Matthew and combined a bunch of stuff from his own personal research and created a much longer Gospel that fills in so many gaps for us. J.C. Ryle, a great 19th century uh, evangelical Anglican bishop, if you can imagine that, said the Gospel of Luke contains... Many precious things which are not recorded in the other three Gospels. Now I want you to think about how much we have to thank Luke for. Such, for instance, are the stories or the histories of Zacharias and Elizabeth, the angel's announcement to Mary, and to speak generally the whole content of the first two chapters. Such again are the narratives of the conversion of Zacchaeus and of the penitent thief, the walk to Emmaus, and the famous parables of the Pharisee and the tax collector the rich man, and Lazarus, and the prodigal son. These are portions of Scripture for which every well-instructed Christian feels peculiarly thankful. And for those, we are indebted to the gospel of Luke. So where did Luke get all this extra stuff? Did he just make it up? Well, that's not what he says. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let me just tell you, my desire and my goal for us this morning particularly, and then throughout the series on Luke, my goal is that your confidence, your confidence in the Bible would grow. And specifically, your confidence in the the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ would grow until it seizes you 
and takes hold of you. And so what I want to do basically is just look at uh, the opportunity that Luke had, the plan that Luke had, and the purpose that Luke had in writing his gospel. Let's look back at verses 1 and 2, which paint for us the unique opportunity, the unique opportunity that Luke had as he wrote his gospel. Let's read it again. Inasmuch as many, now we don't know who these many are, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. Obviously, uh, some of those would be a mark compiling a narrative based uh, probably on Peter's first hand testimony, maybe Matthew, but many more of the things that have been accomplished among us. Accomplished among us here is, is the picture of being fulfilled, of being fulfilled that, that the Bible is full of prophecies, some of them hundreds of years old, all of them fulfilled in Jesus Christ in a unique and powerful way. And Luke says, looking at all of this, investigating it all, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. I want you to think about what a time it was that, that Luke was living in. We have a kind of chronological snobbery and arrogance about us today. Where we falsely, based on a, a lack of our willingness to read history and know history, or read good people or listen to good people who do read history and really know history, we have this tendency to think that nothing is trustworthy unless it's on video. Or people can't know things like we know things today because we're just smarter. Can I tell you, we're not. If anything, we're dumber than people have been throughout history. Luke is writing this in the early 50s, maybe 55 AD, and I want you to think about that as you think about whether or not we trust this and how it um, empowers our lives when we do. Roughly 20 years after the events of Jesus and his death and resurrection had shaken that part of the world. That's why centuries and centuries passed before any apologists or defenders of the faith began to try to defend the resurrection. They didn't have to defend it. No one questioned it early on. It happened. What they talked about was the significance of it. What does it mean? What does it mean? For us in our time. But Mark is, he's, he's writing and he's working here roughly 20 years after these events. And I want you to think, we're roughly 20 years after 9-11. How hard is it to find somebody to sit down with it with and say, tell me where you were that day. And those events are seared into the minds of those who were present. This is Luke's time. And Jesus, Jesus says this very clearly. If you look uh, toward the back of the gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is making this point about fulfilled prophecy and, and God being at work in that time in unique ways historically, even as he explains it to his own disciples. Luke 24, following the resurrection, verse 26, Jesus is talking to some of his disciples and he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
Moses and the prophets, or law and prophets, was a way of talking about the fullness of the Hebrew Scriptures. He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. He's saying, this was written about me. And I want to explain to you, and Jesus goes on to do that, to unpack the things they had seen, they had witnessed themselves. Both the Romans and certainly the Jews had a very, very high value on truth and accuracy. Skip down to verse 44 of chapter 24. Then he said to them, after unpacking this and interpreting it, helping them understand it, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, must be fulfilled. What a time Luke was living in as these were being fulfilled before the human race in that place at that time. 1 John 1.1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Have you, have you well, I'm going to go on. Which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of of life. It's hard to refute personal experience. Have you ever tried to share something with someone and they're like, I don't think that's right. And you're like, it is right. I was there. I saw it. The restaurant is closed. Or whatever the case is. This is what the writers in the New Testament are saying. And it is unlike any other book. Any other religious writing, all of which, by the way, are attributed to one person, not scores of writers across centuries from different contexts and cultures brought together under the inspiration of God. Luke is saying, I want to take serious the things that are uh, accomplished, that have been fulfilled in our time before us, of which we are collectively eyewitnesses. Look at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Peter says that no prophecy has ever, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So God is using the writers of Scripture in their times with their personalities and their skills and their cultural contexts guided by the Holy Spirit so that Luke can write something like he does in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have happened or been accomplished among us, fulfilled among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Part of why, and I'm going to jump ahead of it here just for a minute, but part of why Luke has so much in chapter 1 and 2 that other people don't is he was investigating from the beginning, from people who were there at the beginning of Jesus' life. He says they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. 
They were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. The word of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Part of what you realize when you read Scripture carefully, you look at Luke and you look at Acts, which really is volume one and volume two of a, of a single work. You realize that Luke was a very attentive, very careful, very meticulous historian, an educated medical doctor who understood how to research and write. And when Paul was detained in Caesarea for several years, we have a record of that in Acts 24, Luke was with him. And for two or three years, Luke had lots of time while Paul's being detained in there to be talking with people, to be looking around, to be interviewing people, getting firsthand accounts, witness accounts of people who were there at the beginning. Maybe they grew up where Jesus grew up. Maybe they were following disciples of his, and Luke was listening to their account and compiling it carefully. It's a unique time and a unique opportunity that Luke has, and by the Spirit of God, he was moved to seize it. Now, Luke didn't just have a unique opportunity. He had a specific plan. A specific plan. Nothing is more frustrating either than watching someone who has a unique opportunity but no specific plan. Maybe some of you parents have witnessed a child like that. Maybe in their teens. Maybe in college. Maybe they have a college degree. And they're working on a master's degree in Xbox in your basement. And you're like, child, you have a unique opportunity, but clearly no plan. Luke had a unique opportunity. And by the grace and mercy of God, a very specific plan. He says, in light of what others have done, it seemed good, in verse 3, to me also, having followed all things closely, having followed all things closely for some time past. Luke has been at this for a while, carefully listening, carefully watching, carefully documenting to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was a Roman. He was most excellent. Now you know all that I know about Theophilus. But this was Luke's plan. Luke says, I intended to sit down and to write out as thorough and orderly account of what has happened in our time as is being written. And for a specific reason. As I was reading this, I was thinking about Paul's words to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 13. Not 2, chapter 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. Big 2, little 13. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but it's what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This is Luke's desire for Theophilus, that he will receive what Luke is compiling for him based on eyewitness accounts. 
of men and women who were ministers of the word, witnesses to it firsthand, that Theophilus would receive it as just that, as truth coming to him from God. What a beautiful thing it is when the eternal creator God speaks to you personally in an undeniable way through his word. Many of you have experienced that. It is powerful and profound. It is what God intends. Luke's writing with purpose here. This is his plan to compile these things in an orderly fashion so that the witness might be a powerful one used by God. It's funny, we've lived through a time in the last hundred years or so where it's been fashionable to, to sort of say, well, we don't, we don't know if all this stuff is true. And then sort of shallow historians, and I use the little things, uh, will put out all kinds of accounts saying, we, you know, we can't know this. There were other things floating around. Luckily, thankfully, we live in a town where people who really do want answers to questions have so many great places to go. And maybe you're one of those. Maybe you truly have substantial intellectual questions about the Bible about what is recorded here. If that's you, reach out to me. Reach out to Jake. Let us get some resources in your hands that are going to help you. But what's interesting to me, and there's whole fields of textual critics and text critics who do nothing but this, but study ancient documents and the transmission of them. They're probably not people that would be fun to have over for a party or fun to go to lunch with, but they play an incredibly important part in a faith that has historically been known even among world religions for having a central value on truth and historicity. And what's interesting I was thinking about this this week is when you think about the standard that a lot of people will bring in their minds to the Bible, we we don't bring it to many other things. Take, Take Plato's writings. How many of you ever in high school or college at some point ever had to read anything or study anything about Plato? Anybody? Yeah, most of us. Most of us. It may interest you to know that we only have one, one ancient copy of his works. One. And that only goes back to 895 A.D. 895 A.D. You know when Plato died? 347 B.C. You got like a 1,200-year gap. I'm not good at math, right? So if it's 1187 or 1290 or whatever, you guys can figure that out. My brain did it quick here, right? 895 AD, the oldest writing of Plato's that we have. (coughs) Plato died 347 BC. You never have anybody going, well, how do we know Plato lived? How do we know he actually said these things? And yet we've got literally thousands of copies, ancient copies of Luke's gospel and parts of Luke's Gospels. Some, like Papyrus 75, date back to the first century, the end of the first century. Friends, you can trust the Scriptures. It's interesting here because we, we see Luke seeking to listen to eyewitnesses and then compile his account. And I just want to tell you that it was not Luke's desire to build his faith or to have Theophilus build his faith on sort of human fantasy 
or vain hopes. False hopes can be treacherous. False hopes can be treacherous. Right? Like if you walk out of here today and somebody's handing out cards out there that says you no longer have to pay state income tax in Georgia, they've absolved you of that, and you just believe that and begin to live year after year like that, that's going to come back to bite you. If you believe a bridge is still there that is not, and you hit it fast at night, which is the only way I would hit it, fast, that can be bad. But I've got to say this morning, if you're hoping and attempting to live your life apart from God, to your own glory, to your own satisfaction, to making your name great, to doing as you please, apart from loving Him and serving Him in repentance and forgiveness through faith in Christ. That's a dangerous, dangerous false hope you're building your life on. And one day, you'll know this is true. And I pray that that is on this side of your death, not on the other side. Luke has a unique opportunity. He has a specific plan, and he has a significant purpose. He has a significant purpose. There's a a reason he's doing what he's doing. And he tells us that again in verse 4. He's making this orderly account for Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Do you understand the power, the spiritual power, the security, the peace, the joy, that certainty in what you have been taught and handed down through the gospel brings you? Luke did. We make decisions every day based on certainty. I was drinking a bottle of water just before I came out here. I chose that based on the certainty that it says there's nothing in there but water. And that's been distilled and purified. Every day we make decisions and we build our lives on things that we would not otherwise do if we weren't certain about the information we've been given. But it seems as I watch the landscape in our nation, both of individual believers and of churches, waffle and be blown around by the cultural ways, by the political uh, norms and philosophies. It occurs to me that maybe we're not as certain as we should be about what God's Word teaches. Maybe we don't really trust it. I will trust Him on the heaven stuff but not the sexual stuff. We'll trust him on the heaven stuff, but not the money stuff. We'll trust him on the heaven stuff, but not the forgiving other stuff. And on and on and on we could go. But Luke says to Theophilus, and God says to you this morning, I put Luke in your hands, and by my spirit I have guarded its transmission across centuries that you might have confidence and certainty in the gospel you have received. Do you know God's word that way? Have you experienced it that way? Could you call yourself a servant, a minister of God's word, of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know it? 
Do you know Jesus Christ as the one and only Son of God who lived a perfect life, choosing, though tempted, not to sin, but to live in full obedience to the Father and to take the sins of all who would ever believe in Him onto Himself on the cross, be crucified in your place and mine and Luke's and Theophilus's, And to see that atoning sacrifice affirmed and received by God the Father as sufficient in Jesus' resurrection and ascension back to the right hand, the place of power and authority at the right hand of God, so that you and I might hear this message as sinners separated by rebellious, broken hearts and repent. Repent. Agree with God about who we are. Confess our nature as sinners to Him and stop running and stop exhausting ourselves trying to to build up images and kingdoms that are not ours to have. Lay it all down and say, God, you're right. I repent of my sins. I turn from that way. God, help me. I believe and I trust in Jesus. Do you know the story? The story is connected by God's sovereign intent to his written word that many of you have experienced become his living word in your own living room in your car, in your bedroom, at a lunch table, at a dinner table, on Sunday mornings, in small groups, in a Sunday school class, in an evening Bible study, in a closet somewhere as you sit and read. I love what Archibald Brown said about God's Word, about the Bible. Archibald Brown was converted under, isn't that a great name too? Archibald G. Brown. That's a name, right? Archibald Brown was converted under the ministry of Charles Spurgeon in 19th century England at the Metropolitan Tabernacle and ended up succeeding following Spurgeon as the pastor and preacher of the first megachurch in church history, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Archibald Brown wrote this. He said, other books have a measure of power about them. But this book has an indescribable vitality. It lives. It talks to me. It communes with me. It smites me often. Great 19th century word. Sometimes it kisses me. It rebukes me. God's life is in it from beginning to end. Have you experienced this? Friends, God's Word is central to the life of His people. It is not optional. It's central to our lives. And maybe some of us are living the way that we are, discouraged, disillusioned, lacking in the kind of spiritual power that that we see in the New Testament that should be normative among followers of Jesus because we are so deeply, deeply deeply, biblically malnourished. 
R.T. France, a great, um, great New Testament scholar, uh, 20th century, who uh, worked in, in Oxford and taught for the London School of Theology, said about Luke's gospel particularly, and R.T. France is a New Testament scholar that specialized. He passed away in 2000, but he specialized all his life in the gospels. says, perhaps the best term to sum up Luke's essential message is salvation. Have you experienced it this morning in your life? Do you know that you know that you know that Jesus Christ lives today and He walks with you and He talks with you? If you don't know that, if you're not sure that you know that, I implore you not to waste another day or week or month of your life. Come talk to me. Talk to Jake. Find a friend that you know is a committed follower of Jesus. And talk to them. Say, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know that I understand the Bible the way that Matt was talking about. I don't know that I know that I know. Because a life built on false hope can be eternally treacherous. Let's stand. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.